Hi, this is Johnny DiLoretto, WCBE's Community Relations Director. I just want to say how thrilled we are to bring Dan Skinner's new healthcare podcast, Prognosis Ohio, to WCBE's podcast experience. Whether you're woefully ignorant or admirably abreast of the issues, Dan will bring it all into focus for you. There are a lot of challenges in healthcare in Ohio, and Prognosis Ohio will be your biweekly blast to learn about what we're going to do as a community to overcome them. And now, Dan Skinner and Prognosis Ohio. June is Pride Month around the U.S. and the world, and this past week marked the city of Columbus's celebration as well. Given the many issues confronting the LGBTQ community in central Ohio, we thought, what a better way to launch the new and improved podcast than to address LGBTQ health? This is Prognosis Ohio, WCBE's Health Policy and Politics Report. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. I'm really thrilled to be affiliated with WCBE, a radio station that I love. WCBE is a great fit for Prognosis Ohio in particular, driven by a membership base and station staff that really cares about our community. In the coming episodes, we're excited to shine a light on the great work being done by Ohioans to improve health and healthcare access in our state, while calling attention to the challenges confronting our state. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that we've got a lot of work to do. Before turning to today's guest, it's time, though, for our Prognosis Ohio News Roundup. First up, building on the legislative push against abortion rights here in Ohio is HB 90. Introduced by Representative Nirai Antani, the bill would require schools to implement a, quote, unborn child's humanity instructional program, end quote. Rep. Antani has explicitly said the purpose of this bill is to create an abortion-free society. Groups like the ACLU and Planned Parenthood are alarmed that this measure would mandate the teaching of scientifically inaccurate information and would further erode abortion rights in Ohio. Also alarming science and public health advocates in Ohio is House Bill 268, the Medical Consumer Protection Act, a bipartisan bill introduced by Republican Rep. Ron Hood and Democratic Rep. Bernadine Kennedy Kent. This bill would protect unvaccinated people from being banned from employment opportunities. If put into law, employers could soon be sued for not hiring someone based on the refusal to vaccinate. Proponents have called it a, quote, freedom bill and cited the possibility of vaccine allergies as partial justification. In actuality, though, according to the CDC, vaccine allergies are not only rare, but the diseases vaccines prevent against are much worse than any possible allergy symptoms. Public health advocates are concerned about the impact this legislation could have on those who are not able to be vaccinated and who are put at risk when herd immunity is threatened. In addition, the Ohio Academy of Family Physicians is worried that hospital and patient safety would be affected if hospital employees no longer had strict vaccination requirements. Last but not least, Cincinnati is suing the state because of a bill passed last December that prevents cities in Ohio from passing gun safety legislation. In advocating for local gun safety laws, Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley has said, quote, It's very broad-based, bipartisan. People want us to be able to keep them safer, especially when they're going to work and being subject to mass shootings like they were last September at Fifth Third. There have been 122 shootings in Cincinnati this year alone. As the city challenges the constitutionality of the bill, HB 228, there will undoubtedly be a debate about the merits of gun safety laws and whether medical professionals and public health advocates should be included in the conversation, which is, of course, something that we are going to be sure to follow on Prognosis Ohio. And that's today's Prognosis Ohio News Roundup. Today's guest is Julia Applegate. Julia directs the Institute for LGBTQ Health Equity at Equitas Health, 
She also has over 20 years of experience in curriculum design, education, women's health, HIV AIDS work, and policy development. The training efforts she leads at Equitas focus on questions of health equity, diversity, and inclusion, primarily on marginalized and underserved communities. Okay, without further delay, here's my interview with Julia Applegate. Julia Applegate, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So I wonder if we could start just by having you give the 50,000-foot view of the work that you do. Sure. Um, So my job is to direct our Equitas Health Institute. Our mission is really to look at health disparities experienced by LGBTQ individuals and work on reducing those. So we take a two-prong approach to doing that. We do education and training of health and social service providers and others. Sometimes that can include libraries, museums, um, places really that take care of LGBTQ people uh, to make sure that they're serving us with cultural humility. So that's one side of the work that we do. The other side is working with LGBTQ identified individuals to make sure that they um, know how to access medical care, that they feel empowered um, to get that medical care, they know what their rights are or lack of rights, how to kind of navigate the healthcare system. In February, there was a, a summit in Dayton that was specifically focusing on aging within the LGBTQ community. Is aging a specific issue, and how do you think about aging within the population that you work with? I mean, aging is an issue, period, right? Like, there are all kinds of things that happen for anybody who ages. Um, Combining that with um, a sexual or gender minority identity, and then also when you complicate that by um, race and other things as well, I think you have additional issues to deal with. Um, For example, some of those are social isolation. Um, So for many current LGBTQ seniors, they lived in a time period where it wasn't safe to be out. Um, It's still not completely safe to be out, but having lived through a time period where it wasn't, it wasn't as socially acceptable as it is right now to be different in those ways, Mm -hmm. that is forcing some people to go back into the closet because they don't know that they can live in a safe environment if they need long-term care assistance or um, they're concerned about inheritance and um, visitation rights, things like that. There, there are more protections around those things now than there were 10 years ago, but that doesn't mean that those legal protections have translated into the people who provide services complying with those laws, or even if they comply with the laws, that doesn't mean that their social attitudes have changed about LGBTQ individuals. So, so they might have formal access to, let's say, housing, but when they're there, they might not be able to be who they are, and that has all these other consequences. Yeah, exactly. And that perpetuates social isolation. You know, this is a a show that's dedicated to thinking about health specifically. And one of the things we've tried to focus on is that something like housing, I mean, uh, there's all sorts of horror stories from long-term housing and nursing homes. And some of the laws come into place around that. In other ways, we're not doing very well at all. There still is rampant discrimination based on gender and sexual orientation in Ohio specifically. How how do you connect that or could you connect that a little bit for me to kind of health and how we think about health broadly, which is something that Equitas, I mean, that's Equitas's main focus. Yeah, yeah. Our main focus really is thinking about health across the lifespan. So I think looking at what it is that keeps people healthy as they age and throughout the course of their life. That is, you know, there's preventive elements to it. 
So can you get the preventive screenings that you need? Are you even aware of what preventive screenings you might need? I mean, that's that's an issue that comes up for a lot of lesbian women in terms of gynecological health, misunderstanding the need for preventive screenings for um, cervical cancer because this lack of awareness that it's not just heterosexual sex that would cause you to need that screening, but if you have a uterus and a cervix, you should get that screening. So the preventive side of it, um, the treatment side of it, you know, some people I think will not understand that it's soft skills that go a long way towards making a space or an experience um, with a medical provider safe or not. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the physician might just be thinking, well, I treat everybody the same and, you know, you're coming here for a dental cleaning. That's, I'm going to clean your teeth the same no matter what, you know, no matter who you are, who you sleep with, what you believe in. But that's not how it feels to be in the chair if you're the person who's lesbian or trans or whatever, because you're thinking about, you know, can't, how can I fill out my demographic collection forms? Am I going to be able to tell people who I really am? Are they going to use the proper pronoun for me? Are they going to make an assumption about my relationship status? Or, you know, do I want to have children or don't I? Will they even ask me about my reproductive interests if they assume that I'm gay or lesbian or transgender? You know, so things like that. I think that's some of what we want people to pay attention to, that actually difference matters a lot. Sexual and gender minority difference matters a lot when it comes to questions of health. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much about our bodies. It's not like our bodies are that different or our blood is any different or, or any of that stuff. But it's about the social environment that right. we live in. And all and, the cultural baggage that kind of comes along yeah, with that. I mean, yeah. even really well-meaning, uh, I, I train medical students, and what, they're mostly all very well-meaning. But they come from backgrounds where they may not see how the things they're saying are going to be processed by people who are different than them simply because they haven't had experience. But that's our job as medical educators is to try to find ways to uh, counteract that. Exactly. Yeah. Most people listening to this will have some sense of what a social determinant is. We think about poverty and we think about food deserts and things like that. Are there some social determinants that that people may not be aware of or even think of that are kind of left field, you know, social determinants that might be actually really important for people to know actually really matter in terms of LGBTQ health? Sure. Yeah. When we do our training and education about social determinants of health and and serving the LGBTQ community, we include social norms as a social determinant of health. And can you give an example of a social norm? A social norm such as um, expectations of gender expression or gender identity. So the assumption that if a human being has a vagina, that they should behave in a certain way, like they'll be interested in um, flowers and ballet and those kinds of feminine things. Another one would be um, sexuality, right? Mm -hmm. The assumption that um, somebody who is male should then have partner with someone who's female and have a heterosexual lifestyle. Um, So those social norms around um, sexuality and gender identity drive our experiences of health. And they're often overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, so much so that when we interact with most medical providers, we are not asked questions about our sexual orientation or gender identity. That's seen in many cases to be um, an invasive question to ask someone. And the only reason that's considered invasive is because of homophobia and transphobia. 
I see this with students sometimes. They think they're being polite, but they're actually reproducing a kind of homophobia yeah. in doing that. Right, right, right. It's like if we could normalize the fact that everybody has a sexual orientation, everybody has a gender identity, your awareness around those things is often a function of are you heterosexual or cisgender? Are you in the normative group of those categories or not? The way that we've we've normalized questions around race or age, you mm-hmm. know, we recognize that it's important to collect a person's racial identity um, when we're serving them so that we can track their health and know specific things about an individual. To shift gears a little bit, you know, one of the things that really has jumped out to me once I sat down to actually do this podcast you look around and it's despite the challenges, there are so many people doing amazing work around the state. I mean, it's actually kind of exhausting to think about how many resources we expend just trying to counteract forces sometimes rather than giving people. I think of the, the KKK rally in Dayton recently, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, $700,000 to protect nine people. And OK, you know, First Amendment. But what what could that have done? You know, and I think about all the the festivals we have around uh, Central Ohio. Um, Equitas is there, but also all these other groups are there. And Equitas really strikes me as a play, as, as an organization that builds a lot of connections. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about connection building. You can't do public health without partnership. It just does not work. Um, there aren't enough financial resources. There's not enough human resources. The need is so massive. Um, and like you said, with the KKK thing in Dayton. I can't even imagine how much I could do as a as an institute with seven or six hundred fifty thousand dollars. Like that would carry us for years of public service. So in order to work with the small resources we have, we have to have partnership, and that looks like um, partnering with colleges of public health. And um, sometimes that means for our human resources that we take practicum students and they, as part of their education, they work with us to do some of the work that we don't have the capacity to do. It looks like us partnering with other community-based organizations that serve our community, like Kaleidoscope Youth Center. Um, So they're serving LGBTQ youth, and they're providing a lot of social support. And one of the things we do is we we partner with them so that if those youth that they work with need medical care or mental health care as they become old enough, because we're we're not currently taking care of a pediatric population, um, but once they age into adulthood, then we can take care of their medical needs and Mm. and they know that we're there as a trusted resource. So I think those are two small examples, but, you know, we're also working with, let me see, some substance abuse treatment facilities because they are seeing that there is an increase in um, their patient population of trans individuals or um, gay and lesbian individuals. And they recognize that creating a separate wing that is really explicitly culturally competent Mm -hmm. um, can increase the amount of care they can provide for LGBTQ individuals and have better outcomes, right? So that a person can come in for treatment um, for a substance abuse problem and not have to worry about their sexual orientation or gender identity. They can just really focus on, all right, I need to treat my Um, drinking problem or my opioid problem and not have to worry about how are they going to house me and you know so that you can get that other noise out of your head and really focus on your health so you know i'm thinking about the trump administration is talking about these really changes to religious exemption criteria and 
it's kind of a Damocles sword for organizations like Equitas, where there might be an opening for uh, medical institutions to just deny people access based on sexual orientation um, in particular. I, I wonder about faith-based organizations and collaborations in the area too. I mean, I know you do have some of those. And can you talk a little bit about the importance of having those kinds of groups we can talk about specifically that you're proud of? Yeah, sure. I think these, the Trump administration threats are in some ways designed to incite fear in our population that's already afraid. For us, it almost opens up an opportunity to do more than we're doing already because we were already positioned ourselves very publicly as a safe space um, that centers LGBTQ experiences and healthcare needs. So we can continue to expand and grow our services. I know that as an organization, we have a vision in a relatively near future of, of being within a one hour drive from anyone in Ohio to get the services that they need. So we won't, you know, for our organization, you won't see us going away because of those fears and threats. Um, and I have been very inspired since uh, November 2016, once I got over the shock of the number of organizations that continue to reach out to us. Mm. You know, they want to be good partners. They ask for training. Um, they recognize that that this current administration and these threats and they're not always just threats. I mean, we are seeing um, the the trans ban in the military. These are real things that are happening too, not just threats. People keep coming to the table and saying, we want to do the right thing. And there are just, Ohio just blows me away. And the number and the, the reach of people who really are committed to doing the right thing. So, so I would just say like prior to the election in 2016, we were really energized at my organization thinking that that the Obamacare, the ACA, was going to just be more and more entrenched, and that would then mean more and more people who would seek our services, our training services and our education services, and more providers that would serve our community. Well, then when it was clear that wasn't going to happen, we were afraid that people wouldn't reach out to us. But almost the opposite happened. I think people realize it's now more important than ever to show that we're allies, um, because this community has has been it's been marginalized for so long and people are really afraid now so now let's do even more work to show that we're good partners so we've worked with veterinary hospitals and churches and all kinds of places to um, partner and show that that there are many people all around Ohio who want to serve our community. It certainly is a cards on table moment you know sort of mm -hmm. okay we have these things that we preach what do they actually mean? And I mean, that's happening in reproductive rights discussions as well at the yeah. same time. It's like double down. We're going to double down and really do it now. Yeah. You do this work every day. You interact with people around the community. What's something that you're involved with that people might not really know at all about or that is coming that you're excited about that's mm -hmm. in, in, in progress? Well, I'll, I'll say two things. Um, one, with respect to HIV, and this is more of a clinical thing, the, the need for heightened awareness about the medication, PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, it can, be, it can work in two ways. And there are some other treatment issues around HIV. So people who are at risk for HIV can take a medication that will essentially protect them from um, 
contracting HIV if they come come if they are exposed to the disease, right? So it's kind of like the birth control pill. That's an oversimplification, but um, we know through research who is most at risk for HIV, and we have the medical um, tools to prevent new infections from happening. So making sure that people are aware of PrEP as a tool so that they can access that medication and get on PrEP if they're at risk for HIV. The other side of that is if a person's living with HIV and they're um, in regular medical care, they're taking their medication, they're working with their doctor, um, the doctors will know through laboratory tests that they're the level of HIV in their body. And if they reach a certain level that we call undetectable, um, that means the virus is so suppressed in their body, the, the tests... Um, it's hard to detect that it's there. That the, that individual cannot transmit HIV to another person. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. can have what we would call unprotected sex, so sex without a condom, and the HIV will not be transmitted. So we have clinical research-based proof of that, and it's an important thing for both people living with HIV to know, to um, eliminate that stigma and the pressure of being afraid that you're going to pass it on and also for people who are, are HIV negative to know because they're, the fear of contracting HIV, it can really be eliminated if the people who have HIV are in medical care and yeah. on treatment. That's amazing. I mean, for those who, who do remember the 80s and do remember the 90s, it sometimes just strikes me. This is absolutely amazing. Yeah. You know, this, is, this is an example. There's so much focus on all the things that are going wrong. And I try to tell, you know, medical students who are going to become new physicians, you're coming up at a time when this is a major game changer. And this is something we can look at. Everybody wants to talk about going back to the moon. It's like we're, we're already getting there. Yeah, right, know? right. And we, and we have to, though, make sure that the people who are most at risk are getting the medication. The other thing to just quickly uh, let folks know about is that um, we are working with the Ohio Department of Health on a breast health, breast and chest health education campaign. And that's really looking at the um, disparities within the lesbian community, bisexual community, and trans community of breast cancer. Um, so we've got a health education campaign that also has two prongs. We educate mammography providers around the state um, to make sure that they understand the risk factors for our community and the unique service needs in terms of um providing mammography services. So being thoughtful around, um, you know, for a trans woman who newly has breasts, she needs a breast exam and mm-hmm. knowing when and how to do those screenings. Um, talking with trans men about how to do an exam of um, remaining breast tissue that may be there after a top surgery or a trans man who may bind his breasts but still has them and needs to have the, that screening. So we do that campaign with mammography providers, and then we also do a public education campaign with LGBTQ individuals to let them know about the risk factors and to make them aware of the providers that we've trained around the state who do have the sensitivity um, to provide those services in a way that is comfortable for people. It's that preventive piece that is part of what we're doing. And important that you have a health institute where you're focusing on this education component because you can talk about access all you want, but if you don't get the other piece in place, it's it's almost like you don't even have the access. Yeah, and it was really community conversations that drove the creation of the Institute around this model. They said to us repeatedly, we don't know what we're at risk for. 
and or we don't know where to take care of our problems when we have them because we're too afraid of how we will be treated. We've had bad experiences that keeps us from going in again, and those things prevent us from taking care of our health. So that's really why why we're here. I have to say, you know, this this medium of audio and podcasting doesn't always capture everything you want, but I can just tell listeners, I mean, you you exude this passion for this work, and it's hard work, it's challenging work. I just want to thank you for the work you do and also for talking with me today. Yeah, thank you. It's an honor. Prognosis Ohio is hosted by Dan Skinner and produced by Dan Skinner with help from Kyle Rosenberger. Jory Gomes assists with background research and copy. You can subscribe to Prognosis Ohio through WCBE's podcast experience webpage, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. We would love it if you would leave a positive review so we can continue to grow the show. You can follow us on Twitter at at prognosisohio and email us at prognosisohio at gmail.com. Your suggestions and feedback are most welcomed. Finally, as we do work on growing this show, making it a solid foundation for ongoing conversations about important issues in health and healthcare in Ohio, we will be looking for some financial support. If you're interested in underwriting Prognosis Ohio, please be in touch. Okay, until next time.